Last week on The Afterdinner Scholar, theologian Dr. Kent Lesnowski talked with us about the story of Israel in the Old Testament book of Exodus. This week, we'll continue the conversation about Exodus, only we'll jump ahead of Moses by about 3,000 years. You're listening to The Afterdinner Scholar, Wyoming Catholic College's weekly podcast about the great books and the liberal arts. I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. Regardless of where you stand on the question of whether the United States was founded as a, quote, Christian nation, this much is certain. From the very beginning, the Bible, and the Old Testament in particular, influenced the thoughts, morals, and character of Americans starting long before 1776. And even within the corpus of the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus, chronicling how God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, lent a strong sense of identity to the American colonists and the founders. Dr. Virginia Arbery has an abiding interest in that story, and I asked her to begin by telling us about the Exodus and America, starting with the Pilgrims and the Puritans in New England. I think of the Exodus myth, and by that I don't mean a false tale, but the story, the mythos, uh, as central to the whole enterprise. It's the energizing story that uh, makes it possible for those in Leiden, in uh, Amsterdam, who had already fled from England previously, to organize themselves in 1620 to come here uh, in order to escape what they considered uh, the limitations imposed on them by uh, Anglican uh, religion that still had Romish tendencies, and also to replicate what they had known before the crackdown um, in eastern England. Most of them came from East Anglia, where they had townships, where they had uh, some autonomy with respect to political participation. So when they came over on the Mayflower in 1620, uh, retrospectively, their leader, William Bradford, is referred to by Cotton Mather, who writes the great history of the Puritan immigrations of 1620 and 1630 later. Um, he's referred to, uh, William Bradford is, as the Moses, who would lead his people into the wilderness and so, of course, given that metaphor, the, uh, the English, <laughs> the experience of religious persecution, uh, then becomes uh, Egypt. Um, the wilderness is crossing the ocean and also confronting the unknown wilderness once they land. And their promise is the hope for a full, integrated life, both religious and political, in which they can be together confessing their being part of the elect, covenanted with each other first and then with God to bring about an advancement of the Christian faith, to glorify God, and to honor, they say, <laughs> their king in 1620. So they're the very ability to coalesce depends on a governing myth in which they replicate in their own historical circumstances what had happened 
in the great story of covenant beginning with Abraham all the way through the experience of the people leaving Pharaoh under Moses' leadership. That same myth, um, there's just so many wonderful analogies, is uh, literally uh, captured then by uh, the second big immigration in 1630 on the Arbella led by Winthrop. And he too is configured by uh, Mather, Cotton Mather, as the Moses leading his people through the wilderness. Now there are many, many other aspects of this um, that one could talk about, including the influences of um, Roman and Greek uh, figures uh, on their own self-understanding. But without the story of Exodus, the spiritual roots of our beginning as a people would not have an expression that, that actually has been sustained throughout our history. Well, let's move on to the founders. Now, mm -hmm. How did the imagery of the Exodus influence their thinking and their sense of identity? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it, it, it's attenuated a bit <laughs> by the time we, we get to, uh, say, the debates uh, preceding the American Revolution and then, of course, the constitutional debates in Philadelphia in 1787. But if you look at the sermons of that period, that's where the ringing analogies are made, and the pulpits are the, the vehicle of expression of the people's mind at this time. So the literature quoted the most is from the Bible. The passages of the Bible cited the most are from Exodus, and the people, uh, you know, we're talking uh, 150 years after um, the Mayflower, when we look at the Declaration of Independence, the people who are galvanized to fight England think of themselves as resisting physically, right? Physically resisting in revolution. Um, the tyrant, George III, who's configured as Pharaoh. <laughs> um, and the beautiful thing about this is the not only the religious connotations of that revolution, but then how it's translated into principles. So by the time we get to the Constitution, uh, and well, there is no mention of Exodus or Moses uh, in the Federalist Papers. There's no em emphasis on uh, Moses or Exodus, no, no talk of the Promised Land. But this is what happens instead. That period in the desert where the Israelites are murmuring, where they're having a hard time with their covenant, their fidelity to the covenant, is wisely understood by our founders as that aspect of human nature that must be corrected and shielded against in a good founding. So more than just being the chosen people, right, which is the language both of the speech on the Arbella and in the speeches, the homilies coming from the pulpits, instead of the chosen people were the fallen people who, who need to have a structure where we can have ordered liberty that will be in place through the law, right, that will protect our virtue. Because without a virtuous people, without moderation, self-rule is impossible. Um, so the images still perdure uh, in the conversation, 
but they're not formally uh, insinuated into the documents, which can be understood just on the basis of human nature, not on the basis of revelation. Now, I read that in 1776, when Benjamin Franklin and Thomas yeah. Jefferson yeah. discussed what should be on the country's great seal, seal. Franklin mm -hmm. wanted the parting of the Red Sea with Moses raising yes. his staff while yes. Pharaoh and his chariots and soldiers drowned, mm -hmm. while Jefferson wanted the Israelites led by the cloud in daytime and the pillar of fire at night. Yes. Uh, that is astounding. What <laughs> are we to make of that? Well, and then, of course, what's interesting about that is that you have a deist there with um, Franklin and, and Jefferson both, but they know, they recognize the power of those symbols on the American soul. And I would add, you know, in this great myth, Vogelin says the great myth of the West is the Exodus myth. Eric Vogelin, the great uh, political philosopher, cultural historian of the 20th century, but he talks about Exodus in this um, blanketing way. It's the, it's the, it's the whole West. But the other myths that uh, are classical seem to fall under it as well. So the myth of Aeneas fleeing a burning Troy, right, in order to establish the new Rome of, about which he has no idea. That's the other image that John Adams suggests, but it still is under this uh, blanketing idea of exile, being called to found something new, uh, having a higher purpose, uh, than just separation, but building something that is based on the right nature of man. And that is bigger and better than anything that's come before. Right, right. So um, I want to say that uh, when you actually read the accounts written by the historians, Cotton Mather, who pulls on Nathaniel Morton and others, and you read the great work of Perry Miller uh, from the 1950s on the Puritans. What, what we're seeing from the beginning is a tempered understanding of the city upon the hill, right? So if the new um, city of Boston, the new uh, town of Plymouth, if the new regime is going to be uh, a model it can only do so if the people keep their part of the bargain, which is to answer to the higher law. So God, the, the law of Moses, all of that goes now under the more general idea of a higher law. And if the people can remain consistent to that higher law, then they can achieve a moderate, that is not a utopian or a perfect regime, but a moderate regime, right? So learning the lessons of the failings of the people of Israel, learning the lessons of the arguments <laughs> surrounding uh, the revolution, you know, there are quite a few Tories who don't want to go along with it, the arguments of the anti-federalists and so on, uh, the quick emergence of parties in the United States uh, after the founding, knowing, you know, the fractures that are there in human nature, um, it, it's really quite, uh, extraordinary, I think, that we're able to pull off ordered liberty at all, right? And, and so our founders are, you're almost saying, okay, they don't come up with the laws of Deuteronomy, which would be too extensive, but they do come up with separation of powers, which is a pretty good uh, example of making a remedy for human, for human failings. Let's jump ahead again and uh, 
talk about the Civil War and about particularly African Americans. I yes. Mean, you know, yes. Mount Zion Church is a very common name. So or in, Mount Sinai Church. Mount, Mount Sinai Mount Church. Mount Horeb Church. Right. Zion. Oh, yeah. yes. You go through the American South, you see the names of all these Protestant churches. It's just delightful. It's like going through the Bible. Um, yes. What Another beautiful thing, I think, about our myth is that it is replicated by those who were enslaved by ourselves, <laughs> uh, by the American uh, African slave. And so you get, uh, in their own imagination, in their songs, which are remarkable, such as Go Down Moses, <laughs> um, you get their self-understanding themselves as the people of Israel being persecuted by Egypt. So when Abraham Lincoln comes along, he's understood as Father Abraham. He's reinvigorating God's promise to them through the Christian religion of salvation. In fact, there's some very horrible stories. The, the great American historian Eugene Genovese will talk about this in his book, Roll, Roll Jordan, Roll in which many, many of the African-Americans are interviewed after and during the war. And the documentation shows that many of them crossed the Mississippi, they thought, to freedom on the other side and drowned because they thought they would be saved as God let them cross Jordan, similarly to the Red Sea. We read a book in our curriculum. You asked about this course that I teach, Exodus and the American Myth. We read a book by Faulkner called Go Down Moses. And here's the interesting flip there, because in that story, a grandmother of a Negro boy whom she raises because her daughter uh, leaves, she raises this boy who then goes north, leaves the family uh, old plantation, which is now a farm, and leaves to go north to, to seek his fortune and becomes totally corrupted, totally corrupted. And he eventually is executed for having killed a policeman up in Chicago, my hometown. Well, the story uh, unfolds in which her sense of his danger up in the north is symbolically expressed by her saying that the head of the commissary, the, the descendant of the old plantation, sold her Benjamin into Egypt. And the north is now Egypt, and the south was the promised land. So the result of Reconstruction and the industrialization of the north, and we go on and on, is that for many of the former slave and children's and grandchildren of former slaves, the north was much worse than many of the old folks thought living in the south was, where you had family to help raise you, and you had to work to correct you, and... So yeah, so the so the North is Egypt. Yeah, Faulkner does a great job of showing how complex that whole legacy is. Is the myth of the Exodus still relevant within mm. American culture and politics? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have a problem at the border, as people say. Um, and right now, I think many of us know that uh, most of those immigrants aren't coming from Mexico. They're coming from Cuba, from Venezuela, from Nicaragua, where the tyrannical regimes under the ideology of communism make it impossible for those people to have a good life. Maybe they're not explicitly talking about 
their journey, their hazardous journey, and, and I'm not for an open border, believe me, but I think it's interesting that uh, that journey that my own father took under Mussolini, leaving Mussolini in Italy, is repeated over and over and over again because the belief is that here, under Lord ordered liberty and the law, one will be able to be free. Uh, how religious these people are is pretty clear. They have a Christian inheritance. They're from South America. <laughs> they have a Christian inheritance. Frank Capra, who, who did It's a Wonderful Life, tells the story himself of coming to America in the usual way on the boat and going through Ellis Island and so on. But as he approaches with his father, he tells the story of his father pointing to the Statue of Liberty and saying, you know, Chico, whatever his little nickname was, that lady there, she is our hope. She is the most beautiful lady in the world. In his book, Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, American University professor Dr. Daniel Dreisbach writes, quote, Appeals to the Exodus story are a recurring feature in the narratives of American history. Indeed, the theme of liberty derived from this biblical narrative is prominent and persistent in American discourse, beginning with the Pilgrim and Puritan settlers, who believed that they had escaped oppression in Great Britain, just as the Jews had been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and continuing through the 18th century patriots who fought the, quote, tyranny of George III, 19th century abolitionists who sought the emancipation of African slaves and the termination of the peculiar institution, and 20th century Americans who struggled to secure the civil rights of African Americans, close quote. It makes me at least wonder how that image of the Exodus applies to us today. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.